So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 through 30, 36 through 43. If not, it'll be right up there for you as well, so you can uh, read it off the screen. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where where then did these weeds come from? And he answered, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds at first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, Well, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. We've been talking about parables, what I've called simply the stories of Jesus on life, on death, on eternity. Now, just to remind you, a parable are actually two Greek words, parabole, which means to throw alongside. And a parable is a story that is fictional, but it carries with it truths. A parable is allegorical in nature, but the purpose of a parable is to communicate truths that are inside that allegory. I heard somebody say, uh, a good definition is, a parable is a concrete depiction of a cosmic truth. A parable takes abstract truth, and it makes abstract truth more concrete by telling the parable. That's why Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like, you see? So you might have a question to Jesus, to any pastor. So what's the kingdom of heaven like? And Jesus would say, well, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he would tell a story. Now, there's always, remember I've said there's always more truth that can be found in any one scripture, but never any less. So that means that you can't just take one parable about the kingdom of heaven and say that it depicts a complete illustration of the kingdom of heaven. Like it's a completed truth completely, because Jesus told lots of stories about the kingdom of heaven in order to communicate different facets of it. For instance, he said the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, that a woman mixes with three measures of flour. He said at another time, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Another time, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged the marriage for his son, dot, dot, dot. Right? So Jesus, and by the way, there's many more than that. Jesus used lots of parables to tell different facets of the kingdom. So today, this morning, we're studying a kingdom of heaven parable that is intended to give us a few truths, maybe one big truth, but a few truths 
or a few aspects of the kingdom of heaven, but not all of the truths. So our job this morning is to find out what Jesus is trying to communicate about the kingdom of heaven in this parable. So what is his main point? What's his motivation for telling this? Well, I'll tell you what other people think. Many theologians say that the great point of this parable is to talk about impending doom. In other words, judgment. Someday, Jesus said, there will be a harvesting. And someday, there will be some who will be collected for the heavenly barn, and some who will be collected to be burned in the fire. And that's the message, and that's the intention. And I think, obviously, that message is in there. But I don't think it's the main thrust of his message, because remember, he interprets this parable only for his disciples. In other words, I don't think his point was to scare his disciples because he's interpreting it for the wheat. Do you see what I mean? Like there's no reason to scare them because he already knows they're wheat and they will grow up to be wheat and they will be collected uh, to, to shine like the sun. Okay, So I don't think that's the thrust, although judgment is there. Some preachers, and this is really disturbing to me, is if you look up this parable and look about all of the sermons and preachers who talked about this parable, the great thrust of the messaging on this parable has been about sin in the church. Inside the church, wheat and weeds grow up together side by side, would these, these sermons would say, and someday Christ will come back and separate real Christians from fake Christians, you know, authentic Christians from inauthentic Christians. And in fact, Matthew 7.22 says, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Now that's a scripture about Christians who, who find out they're not. Right? Really scary. Like someday, here is a biblical truth that someday people who think they are Christians will find out that they're not. That's scary. Scary stuff. And I would actually like to go with that translation of the parable because I don't like to pass up an opportunity to scare you. But I can't. And I'll tell you why. There's a real problem I have with that translation because and some of you already know, because Jesus actually interprets this parable for us, and he says that the field is what? The world. Now, not the church. He says the field is the world. Now, Jesus, he's a very smart guy, right? He knew the word church. He could have used that. Instead, he says, no, 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 the field is the world. And in fact, if you do interpret the field being the church, not only are you changing Jesus' interpretation, but it brings other problems into the text because the parable says, essentially, the point of the parable is don't separate the weeds from the wheat. Leave them alone. And this would be contrary to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 where he tells the church how to lovingly confront sin in the church among brothers and sisters in Christ, how to do it, when to do it, even to the point of putting them outside of the fellowship. Okay, And so then you would have issues with other scriptures. So this parable isn't about judgment, I don't think, and it's not about the church. So what is it about? I think, his, I think Jesus is simply giving his disciples a huge cup, a theological cup of coffee, or maybe an emotional cup of coffee. I think Jesus is sharing with his disciples the reality of living as a Christian while you are on earth. It's as simple as that. There is a reality about the kingdom of heaven on earth that is in stark contrast to what we want it to be, what we think it's going to be, and what we even hope it to be. 
This is the parable, and I think that's Jesus' point. This is the parable, by the way. I'll, t- I'll tell it and explain it. And, and, you know, Jesus interprets it for us. But he says, first of all, he says, I'm the planter, and it's my field. In other words, it's my field, and then the field is the world. He says that's clear. Which, and, and he says it's my seed. Okay, so it's Christ's investment, Christ's initiative. It all belongs to Christ. And Jesus, he says, I plant redeemed seed in the world. In other words, I'm the one who's planting true believers into the world. And through my grace, care, and comfort, believers grow up and bear fruit. Okay, but then he says, he enters the protagonist. There's a problem. There's another sower in this field who sows at night. And in other words, there's an enemy to the good crop, someone who is almost just as invested as Jesus in destroying the crop as Jesus is protecting it. And Jesus says that person is Satan, which is good. There's theology there about Satan is the one. Evil comes from Satan, not God. But Satan comes in and he plants bad seed. And the bad seed is non-believers or non-Christians. The Greek word, by the way, so you know, for the seed, bad seed, is zizanian or zizanian. It's translated, some of you might have Bibles where it's translated for, in your Bible as tear, wheat and tear, or wheat and darnell. If you look up Zizanian uh, or look up darnell, you'll also find the words cockle or false wheat. I don't know, maybe some farmers know these words. But Jesus is saying in this parable, he's not saying they're just weeds. Okay? Jesus' listeners knew well Zizanian. It was the bane of farmers in this time and still to this day in those areas, regions of the world. Because Zizanian is a form of wheat. In other words, it looked like wheat, it acted like wheat, until it grew up into maturity and then there was no fruit. There's no head of grain on the wheat. And so, in fact, it was such a problem with people hurting one another's farms during that day that there were laws, Jewish and Roman laws, against people planting Zizanian and other people's crops because that's how you would hurt your neighbor. Which, by the way, if you've ever been to difficult cultures, they will do that. They will hurt their next-door neighbor because it's not fair that they have better crops than they do. And what you did is you simply threw the Zizanian seed all over his crop at night and your dastardly deed wouldn't be found out until months and months and months later when it was too late for the farmer to do anything about it. The Zizanian was rooted in along with the good wheat at that point, and the entire time it would have been choking out nutrients and, 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 and you know, overtaking the sun and sucking up all the rain and the care of the farmer. If that happened to you in that day, obviously you didn't know who did it, what could you do? Well, the only thing you could do is you just had to wait. In other words, uh, you harvested both of the, the you know, you, you harvested both and then you separated them at the harvest. You had to just let them continue to grow up altogether. But, no, you know, make no mistake, you know your crop had been hurt. So, someday, Jesus says, Christ is going to send his harvesters to the earth. Who are the harvesters? His angels. And they will come and they will separate the true wheat from the counterfeit wheat. And then all in that time will be made right. And that's the story. That's it. And Jesus said, that story is the reality of being a Christian on earth. Now, what does that mean? It means there's two planters, there's two crops, there's two kingdoms growing up, not in separate fields, but side by side for a time. But at the harvest, those kingdoms will finally and forever be separated, and there will be two final destinies for those two different kingdoms. Okay? So, that's it. Now, let me make a couple of points. And these points will be very simple, you'll see. But I think these points will help us to have a realistic view of our life on earth as Christians. In other words, let me give you three sips of coffee, 
And then you'll leave and say, okay, I, I know more about the reality of my life on earth as a Christian. First point. Christians, brothers and sisters, should always try to manage their expectations of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Okay, let me talk about this a little bit. Jesus had to do this all the time when he came as well. Why? Because Jesus was teaching to a people who were very proud, very proud Jewish nation, very independent, and they had once been a very strong, self-sufficient world power. They had history. But not at this time. When Jesus came, they were simply a colony. They were, uh, they were being oppressed by the Roman rule in that day. They, were, they answered to Rome. They paid taxes to Caesar. Who is that guy? Why do we have to do that? They had lost all of their military might. They had lost their autonomy as a people. They were being oppressed by a different power. Listen, they were subjected to a secular throne. Imagine how you know, terrible that would have been for them. And so what did they do? They prayed, they prayed, they repented, they prayed, they cried out to God, and they thought that a Messiah would come. And what would that Messiah do? Would come and overthrow the other kingdom, and all things would be made right again. You see, in their view, the Zizanian was choking them out. And so what would, a, what would a Messiah do? A Messiah would come and rip out the Zizanian, bring back their godly rule, and, and the, the, the national godly prosperity would be theirs again, and it would sweep the land, and they would finally be restored to their former glory. All of their national self-esteem would return. Amazing. In fact, I really believe, as I read John the Baptist more and more, I really believe he thought that's what the kingdom of heaven would do as well. He knew who Jesus was from this very womb, And yet when he talked about the kingdom, he always talked about the winnowing fork is coming, right? It's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, The the axe is laying at the root of the tree. What's he? He's thinking the Messiah is coming and he will make all things right here. And finally, so John the Baptist went out and started doing it himself. He's attacking Herod, right? He's saying all these things against the world. And that's why John the Baptist had a crisis of faith when he was awaiting his execution. Because the axe at the base of the tree was the axe at the base of his tree. And he was going to be cut down, not Herod. And so Jesus had to say to them all of the time, including his cousin John, he had to say, and he says to us today, by the way, that the kingdom of heaven is not going to act in the way you want it to while it's on earth. In fact, if you remember, I believe Satan's temptation was for Jesus to actually act in this way, to, res- to have a type of kingdom that, that the people wanted and that the people would glorify Jesus for. And what Jesus did is he came and he contradicted every expectation. And what he was saying was, <clears throat> by his actions, by his life, he was saying, no, you don't get it. The kingdom of heaven is deeper, more extensive, more comprehensive than what you even think it is. It's not less than what you think it is. It's more, and yet it feels like less. You see, here's what he would say to his disciples. He would say the same thing to us today. He would say, your problem is not politics. You see, your problem is not poverty. Your problem is not lack of quality health care. Your problem is not lack of education. Your problem is not even your lack of power it's not that you're a slave person or a free person. That's why Jesus never t- really you know, dealt in those realms. Your problem is not that you're oppressed or in control. None of that matters. He would say, 
to them the same thing he would say to us today. He would say the problem is what? Sin. Sin. The problem is much, much deeper. The problem is more comprehensive than education, you know, than quality you know, lunch programs for you know, people in need, for, than your taxes. You know? there's, there's something deeper that's broken that can't be made right by anybody else. The very fabric of life has been torn, and the, and the fabric has been torn by sin. And he would say, that is why I've come. You see, let me put it this way. He would say to us, I have come not so that the temporary circumstances in your life on earth can be brought into healing, although it may, right? That's my caveat. Maybe that will happen to you, but that's not why he came. In other words, Jesus healed some blind people, but not all. Some lame people, not all. Some people with leprosy, not all, okay? Because that's not why he came, was to have a world without leprosy. No, he would say, and I am saying to you today, I have come so that you, if you take me in, the, the circumstances of your life will no longer matter. Do you see the difference? Because it's a huge difference. And preachers will choose one or the other to talk about. You see, I have come not to bring the temporary circumstances of your life into a healing state, although that may happen. If it does happen, I guarantee it'll be for somebody else. I have come here so that regardless of your temporary circumstances, you have life abundant. You see, Jesus, why? He's going after the disease, not the symptoms of the disease. And they never understood that about Jesus. In fact, I think when they killed him, I think they thought it proved his inability to be a good kingdom leader and a king. I think they thought, well, now we know. You see? The king of the Jews, right? Ha ha, that was all mocking him. Nailed to a cross. What a great kingdom. He must have been a false king. That's right. He can't even save himself, Doug said. You see? He must not be a king. There must not be a kingdom. And listen, why did they think that? By the way, we do the same thing with Jesus. Christians do. We come into the kingdom and we have a list of expectations. Things will be made right in my life. My prayers will be answered. My marriage will be great. My kids will be obedient and turn into wonderful, uh, you know, law-abiding citizens. <laughs> Valerie's laughing out loud. My, my life will get better, whatever that means. And so usually people don't mean better. My heart will get better. The circumstances of my life will get better. The things that have oppressed me in my life will be defeated finally. And the, the Scripture's always telling us, Maybe, maybe not. But Jesus is coming for a different healing, a deeper healing, a more comprehensive healing. The kingdom is more about defeating my heart of sin that feels like it needs to be in control. You see, the best way for Jesus to be okay about healing your disease is when it no longer matters. You see, the kingdom of heaven is coming in to, to defeat my heart that feels like it needs to have correct circumstances for me to be content. Once I'm content then maybe Jesus can move. Jesus is saying all the time through Scripture and here to the, to the disciples, manage your expectations because while the kingdom is on earth, the tares grow right up next to the wheat. They're not in a separate field. They're right next to you. In fact, he would say it could be a father. It could be a mother. It could be a son. Remember, he says, I come to separate that. And they're together. 
Because some people's hearts are being healed and some are not. And it's not like it's a different field where the hearts are not healed. It's right in your soil. And there's plenty of conflict because of that. Plenty of ambiguity. Plenty of heartbreak. Plenty of uncomfortable feelings. You know, Because sin and sinners are encringing on your soil. And they do. So they steal your nutrients. They, they hover over your, your sunlight. And the victory, therefore, for every Christian must be found, listen to this, for every Christian, your victory must be found in deeper places than the condition of the field in which you're planted. Sip of coffee, number two. Christians should be patient. Now, I could go over a whole etymological study about what patience means, but I'll just jump to it. He says that the kingdom is like farming. Think about the patience of a farmer. You know, any farmer in here would tell you there's the two really crazy seasons, right? There's the sowing season and the reaping season. And in between, they're eating donuts all day. And, you know, <laughs> they're sitting at home and then they go out on their tractor and they just ride around and don't know what to do. And they go visit other farmers and talk about fields, right? They don't do anything in between. <laughs> and that's not true, but it is true that the in-between season requires a lot of patience for a farmer. Sure, there's, pl- sure there's, there's rain, there's sun, there's, uh, there are nutrients being taken in. The Bible says we have the Holy Spirit. It's about our sanctification. Yes, it takes a great deal of patience, however, because the sowing has been done and we're not yet at the reaping. What does that mean? Here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> I guess what I mean by that, and this is easier to say it this way, is a Christian, for all of us, we should neither be zealots nor should we be passive. The Bible says... We are to deal with sin in the church. We're not passive. Yes. But it says, in the world, don't be a zealot. In the world? Why? Because the world's supposed to act like the world. Be patient. Let the world and the church grow up together. And he says, I and my angels, we will sort it out in the end. All one has to do is look at the Spanish Inquisition, right? The Crusades, the, the reign of Bloody Mary in England, to see the results of zealot Christianity. Trying to, you know, pull out the weeds. The church attacking the world. Ripping out the Zizanian. And what happens when they do it? All the time, we kill Christians. Now, here's why you don't do that. Here's why you should not rip out weeds in the world. Because there's a huge problem. You're not Jesus. And you're not an angel which means you're not subject to the same information. What do I mean by that? It means we do a terrible job in the church of discerning between a wayward Christian and a sinner headed to hell. We do a terrible job of discerning between a backsliding Christian and a season in their life and somebody who's in rebellion against God. We don't know. We do a terrible job of trying to to discern between a false Christian and a real Christian. And here's sometimes what the church will do as well. We do an awful job of discerning between somebody who looks like a really good Christian, who's simply a religious person, and somebody who really knows Christ and may be struggling. And what we do is we rip out the wrong ones all the time, and we hurt the cause of Christ. So what does Christ say to us? He says, be patient. Let them grow up together. There will be a day when all will be known. And then he says, just in case we don't get it, by the way, I'm the harvester, not you. You get your hands off that Zizanian. And this, this can be hard because 
Sometimes it looks like Christians, depending on the field and the place and the season, it looks like they're being overtaken by Zizanian. Sometimes we feel that way. You know, being overrun by the world. The, the field is looking worse and worse. And by the way, in the short view, that could even be correct. But listen, God plays the long game. So you be patient because you're not God. Now, I know this is hard because, by the way, just so there's not any kind of uh, misunderstanding, I'm not talking about our evangelical efforts. Okay, I'm not talking about being missional with your life. It has more to do with your motivation for evangelism, your motivation for mission. It should be obedience. That's simply all it is. Because he said to go, I go. But at the same time, I know in my head that wheat are wheat are wheat are wheat. And Christ already knows all the names, already knows the correct number. The names are already written in the book of life from the beginning of time who will be saved. So that gives me comfort. So yes, I'm obedient. But listen, all he says is he says, be a light in your world, but don't rip out tares. Do you see the difference? That's a job for the angels. Your job as Christians is to love. Your job is to shine. Your job is to be salt. But don't be passive. Patience, a farmer will tell you in the middle seasons, is not about doing nothing. So the Bible says you're not saved just for you. You're saved so that, you see, so that you can be a blessing to those around you, so that you can do all God wants you to do and that you can be all God wants you to be. It just, for me, here's how, here's, I'll tell you how I process it. For me, it has more to do with me attacking the sin nature with the Holy Spirit in my own life, much more so than it has to do with handing a turn or burn flyer to the local liquor store owner. That's all. It has more to do with me knowing my sin nature and going after it with God and being a light in my world than it does even, even assuming that I could do that in my spouse's life. Uh, Billy Graham's wife, I always love, she used to say, my job is to love Billy, it's God's job to change him. Okay, That's true for all of us. You can't change a wheat, you can't change a tear, but you can be patient, you can love, you can shine, you can be salt. Come on. Balance. Don't be a zealot, but don't be passive. Don't rip out tears, but also fight for your soil. Dig in your roots. Struggle for your nutrients. Reach up for your son's sustenance. Don't just sit there in your faith. Because yes, the Bible says your salvation is secure, but it also says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12, amen? Both of those we hold together with both hands. There's great assurance, and I'm working. Third and final sip of coffee. A Christian, more than any other person on earth, should be somebody who lives with great hope. Jesus is telling his disciples, with this great cup of coffee, he kind of gives them a, you know, a sugar donut at the end. And he says, Let me, yes, it's a struggle now. Yes, things are hard now. Yes, things are plenty ambiguous now. It's, it's, it's plenty painful. It's incredibly, I would say even it feels unfair. It's, it's not right on earth, is what he's saying. Do you get that? But then he says, someday, and listen, I underline someday for you because it means not now. Someday, he says, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Oh, someday. 
Don't you see? Jesus is saying, you want to put your hope here, but it's not. Your hope's up there. You want to put your, citizens, your citizenry here, but you're not. Your citizenship is up there. And this is the greatest news of hope for me as a Christian. Here's what I take in. Here's what I'll just share with you how I feel as I was, pre, as I was studying this week. I was thinking at the end of this, oh, this is so hard. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm wheat. I'm wheat. What does that mean? It means that just like a baby can't give birth to itself, just like a camel can't get through an eye of a needle, just like a wheat seed can't plant itself, a wheat seed can't even make itself, Jesus is telling his disciples in this room, he's saying, don't you see, you're miracles of grace. You are something that I have done. Somebody did something for Don Logan that I couldn't do for myself. Hallelujah. I'm not, a, I'm not a tear that turned myself into a wheat. Jesus said, I planted you, Don, and someday you'll be shining like the sun. So yes, he says, yes, it's a struggle. Yes, the reality is that you can't make it right. You can't really change your soil. It's up to him to do that. Yes, I can't control my own life, and I'll be honest with you, oftentimes it's not the way I would run my life if I had control of it. I have issues with God. But he says to me, it's okay that you have issues. Just be submissive and don't be discouraged because, Don, you're wheat. I'm wheat. Listen, if you're a Christian, you win. Don't you see? John the Baptist, the axe is laying at the base of your tree, but you win. And Jesus couldn't give him that victory if the kingdom meant saving John from prison. My joy, you know what my hope is? I say this all the time. My hope is like a wood stove. That's my hope. What's a wood stove? A wood stove is just this old thing you put in the basement, right? And when it's June and July and I'm out in the pool, the last thing, the last place I'm at is where the wood stove is. I even forget it's there. But the colder it gets, you see, when the winds start to change outside my house, the harder the snow falls, the wind begins to break through the windows and the shutters break open and it's cold upstairs and it's cold in my middle area of my house and I go down and my, my what happens to the wood stove? It cranks up. The same wood stove I forgot I had in June, now I'm curled up next to and even in the worst temperature, if I'm curled up in that wood stove, I can sing in my suffering because this isn't my home. I'm a citizen of another home. And in that moment, Christ says, here's the reality of your life. In the moment when you hate the field you're in, if you go down into the basement where your wood stove is and you realize where your hope is, you can make God more of a father than he's ever been to you before. You can make him more of a king in your life than he's ever been before in your life. You can make him more of a savior than he's ever been a savior in your life. You can make him more of a Lord than he's ever been in your life. You can make him more of your hope than he's ever been in your life. Every loss on earth should quicken your hope for the next. Amen? Let's pray.